Uh, we are in Mark. You ready for this, church? Chapter 3. It only took me 11 messages, but we made it through chapter 2. All right, praise God. Mark 3. You can open up your Bible there, and uh, I'm going to start just by reading with you the first six verses. Uh, that's the message t- title for this morning, and in your bulletin you have a note sheet that you can use if that's helpful for you. Uh, the, I believe the sermon notes are also available on the YouVersion uh, Bible app, but Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is where we're at. And here our author Mark writes, let's read this together. Again, he entered, speaking of Jesus, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, if you're new to our assembly here, the way uh, I typically preach is we, we work through the text. We try to understand what is happening in the passage of the Bible that we're studying uh, on any given day, and then we try to draw some application from that. So that's what we're going to do at this time. So this encounter may have happened in Capernaum. This could be another encounter, as many of the encounters that we've seen that Jesus has had Uh, It may be that this is happening in the city of Capernaum, uh, but it could be in a different city in Galilee as well. Mark doesn't tell us. Uh, We don't know if Jesus is on the road uh, going around the Sea of Galilee or going out throughout the area of Galilee at this time or if he's at home at his home base in Capernaum. He simply tells us that Jesus enters a synagogue Just as a reminder, a synagogue is a place of assembly. It was a place of assembly for the Jews during this time, still today, for the purpose of worship, for prayer, to study. And so this was a place of gathering. And Jesus goes into the synagogue. And then Mark tells us about one other man in the synagogue. Does Mark tell us this man's name? No. Does he tell us his occupation? No. Does he tell us where he was from? No. What does he tell us about this man? He only really gives one descriptive of this individual that Jesus is having this encounter with. He says that he is a man who has a withered hand. This, this word, the Greek word here is zerino. And zerino can mean dried up, withered. Withered is actually a very good translation for it, but it's deformed, it's crippled. This would have been some kind of deformity. And we don't know if this was a deformity that this man has lived with his entire life. It's possible that he could have been born this way. It's possible that this could have happened in an accident from working. But for some reason, in some way, he has a hand that is of no use anymore. It's crippled. It's withered. It's a physical defect of some kind. However... There's no doubt that this disability would have impacted this man's life. Whatever the cause of it was, and however long he has lived with it, this would have had a drastic impact 
on his life, especially during this time. It would have impacted his ability to work. It would have impacted his ability to have a family. Uh, Dr. Daniel Aiken, I'll just point this out, uh, Dr. Aiken talks about the social impact that this would have had. Even something as simple as going into the synagogue where we find this scene taking place, even something as simple as this, as going into the synagogue to worship, Dr. Aiken writes, one can imagine the repeated embarrassment he endured every time he lifted up his hands in prayer, as was the custom. This is something that would have been normal. It's not so normal for Baptists, apparently, in the 21st century to raise their hands in worship, but it would have been normal for Jewish men back in this day, right, to lift up their hands in worship, in prayer. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, to the church, mind you, he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And so this would have been the expectation in the synagogue. Now, this would have had a social impact on this man with the withered hand, though. Dr. Aiken continues to write, he says, some may have drawn the conclusion that his deformed hand was a curse from God. This would have been a common way back in this day to perceive this. And so not only did it have a physical impact on the man, not only certainly did it have a financial impact on him, but it also would have had a very significant social impact on him, even as he went to try to participate in the religious life of the community. Well, next Mark informs us of a group of people in the synagogue with an agenda. It's hard to believe, right, that people would be a part of a religious assembly with an agenda, right, church? That never happens, right? But no laughter at all? Okay, all right, maybe, you know, all right, I'll back, I'll back off a little bit here. Okay, but there's a group of people here who come into the synagogue that have a very clear agenda. And Mark tells us about this in the second verse of the chapter. He just calls them they. He'll explain who they are in a bit. But he says, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, who is the they in this verse? We should probably define this group. Mark doesn't tell us here in verse 2, but he's going to later identify them in verse 6, if you want to read ahead a bit. Verse 6, he defines them as the Pharisees. Luke writes of the same encounter. If you were to, and, and I'll periodically point this out as we study through Mark's gospel, that there are parallel passages. In other words, a lot of the things that Mark writes about, Matthew and Luke write about as well. And so Luke writes about this exact same interaction in the synagogue between Jesus and a man with a withered hand. And in Luke's parallel passage on this issue, he specifically identifies the group, if you were to check that out, as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So who's the they? The they are Pharisees and teachers of the law. And we are getting to know, if you've been hanging with us throughout this series, we're getting to know both of these groups pretty well. Now, the next question I had coming to the text is why are they, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, why are they watching Jesus? What's their intent here? And we've certainly covered this to some extent, but let me just kind of, oh, I don't know, put it into an axiom for you. Legalism creates criticism. Legalism creates 
criticism. When you are seeing life through the lenses of legalism, you are always watching for somebody to do something wrong. I'm hearing some amen, so some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have probably witnessed this throughout your life, or you've been a part, dare I say, even of a church body in a local assembly where this has been the MO. This has been the way the community has operated in a very legalistic manner. And what you have found there is that legalism creates criticism. That when people think through the lenses, they look at the Christian life and spirituality and what it means to follow after Jesus Christ, when they look at that through the lenses of legalism, they're always watching for someone to mess up. It's the way people begin to think. You become the judgmental older son in the story that Jesus tells about the two prodigal sons. That's who you become because you're thinking legalistically. You are thinking critically about people. Now, let's get back to the story here, lest I get preaching before the, the time is right. How did legalism impact their thinking in reference to what Jesus might do on the Sabbath on this day? How does the legalistic thinking, the lenses that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law are seeing through, impact what they see Jesus doing on the Sabbath? Well, let me give you a little historical background to explain this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had already been debating for decades about what was right and what was wrong to do on the Sabbath. And, and we looked at this just last week when we talked about that idea of working and, and traveling on the Sabbath and working on the Sabbath. And, and I talked to you about how the Mishnah had developed 39. The Mishnah was the written uh, record of the oral tradition of the Pharisees that talked about 39 different uh, ways to violate the Sabbath by working and how they believed the disciples had done that, but how Jesus had defended his disciples by laying out three arguments of why what they did was appropriate and okay. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had already debated, church, whether or not it was sinful to seek medical attention on the Sabbath. This was something that had already been talked about for decades in their oral tradition. And they had decided that it was okay in some occasions. And so there was a passage of the Mishnah that said this, what I put up on the screen for you. Whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had already decided that if, if, it's, a, it's, a, if it's a case of life and death, if there's a possibility that someone might actually die, then it's, it's okay. You can seek medical attention. But anything short of that, then you're violating the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. Now, again, this was their oral tradition. And they even, and you would expect nothing less by now, they even gave examples of times when medical care was permissible. And so, for instance, midwives, let me give you just a couple examples quickly so you can get a picture of this in your mind. Midwives were allowed to work since childbirth could not be delayed. Those babies can sometimes be very impatient and not wait for the Sabbath to be over. 
And so it was okay for a midwife to work on the Sabbath. Circumcision was allowed. Since this was a sacred act, it was a religious act. But in many other cases, medical attention had to be delayed on the Sabbath, according to the thinking of the Pharisees. In this instance, the man with the withered hand that we see here in the text was not in any immediate life-threatening danger. And so there was no reason why Jesus shouldn't wait to heal him until the Sabbath was over. This was the thinking of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus was doing something wrong because he could have waited. This man had lived with this deformity, with this disability, for who knows how long. We don't know. It could have been his whole life. And Jesus could have waited to the next day to heal him. But he goes ahead and he does it now. He breaks the Sabbath in order to heal him. Now, let me remind you real quick what the punishment was for breaking the Sabbath. This is found in Scripture. This is Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 through 15. This is part of what we call the Mosaic Law. And here it was written, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. However, Jesus has already established in the passage we looked at last week at the end of chapter 2 that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He has already established that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so he sees no reason to wait to the next day. He has already declared his authority over the Sabbath, and now he's going to display his authority over the Sabbath. Look at verse 3 with me in Mark chapter 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now again, why does Jesus do this? I think we need to ask the question because it sets up what happens next. Jesus had all kinds of options at this moment. He's in the synagogue. He sees the man with the deformed hand, and he, there are several ways he could have went with this. He, he could have whispered to the man, hey, meet me out back. We'll get that hand taken care of. You know, I'll, let's go out the back door. It'll just be like 30 seconds. He could have done that. He could have made an appointment for him the, with him for the next day. But instead, what the text tells us is he calls out to the man in the synagogue. He calls out to him, drawing attention in the synagogue on the Sabbath, right in front of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It, it almost seems like he wants a confrontation with them. I, I mean, is Jesus picking a fight here? Is that... What's happening in the text? What does he say to the man? The ESV translate the English Standard Version, which I, I preach from, and so this is not meant as criticism of the ESV. It's actually an incredibly accurate translation in most cases, but it doesn't do the best job with the Greek in this verse. The phrase, come here, that you see if you're reading ESV along with me, doesn't capture what's happening. Let me show you what the Greek phrase that, that what's actually recorded in the original text says. 
The Greek phrase that Mark records is this, egeri eis tomison. A much, much more accurate translation of that phrase is stand up in the middle. This is what Christ says to this man with the withered hand. He says, stand up in the middle. He's saying to him, come to the middle of the room. Come to the center of the room. What's he doing? He's drawing attention to him. He's getting everyone's attention. He's saying, hey, everybody, watch what's about to happen. Hey, Pharisees, teachers of the law, check this out. He's telling the man, stand up in the middle. Jesus is telling him to stand in the middle of the assembly where everyone can see him. Now, why does he tell him to do this? Because he's about to confront the hypocrisy of these religious leaders as he does something truly good and loving for this man at the same time. His motivation is to bless this man and to heal him and to change and transform his life. But at the same time, he's going to confront the hypocrisy that's in these spiritual leaders' hearts all at once. He makes sure that they are paying attention by addressing them. It's what we see next in verse 4. As he says to these Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? It's verse 4 in Mark chapter 3. And how do they respond to Jesus? They don't. They are absolutely speechless in his presence. They remain silent. And so Jesus actually gives the answer to his own question. He may have meant it to be rhetorical. He may have wanted to see what they were thinking and wanted a response from them, but they're completely silent. And so he answers his own question. Mark doesn't record it for us, but again, a parallel passage. Thankfully, Matthew does. Matthew and his telling of this event in Matthew chapter 12, verses 11 through 12, Jesus says this to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And here's his point. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What is Jesus clearly communicating, church? Healing someone, healing someone is obviously a good deed. Leaving that person unhealed when you had the power to heal would show a lack of compassion. And then as we come back to Mark chapter 3 and verse 4, Jesus, we see in verse 4, he escalates the question, doesn't he? Because he doesn't just make it about healing or, or not healing. He says if it's right to heal because healing is a good deed, then how much better is it to save a life as he takes it up a notch? Again, I think this is for a very clear purpose. And if it's wrong to harm, then how much worse is it to kill? What is Jesus doing here? I think that he is exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
He's revealing to them that he knows what's in their hearts on that day. I'll let Dr. R.C. Sproul say it. Dr. Sproul wrote, I believe Jesus was speaking with irony because he knew that what was going on in the minds of the religious leaders, that they were ready to bring charges against him for doing good on the Sabbath day, even while they were plotting on that same Sabbath day to kill him. Could there have been a worse way of violating the sanctity of the day God set apart for the well-being of his people than to plot to kill the Lord of the Sabbath? on the Sabbath day. Well, Jesus is about to do something truly good and life-giving for this man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are using their Sabbath to try to trap Jesus and ultimately to plot his death. I want you to notice that Jesus is not stoic and unfeeling as all of this is transpiring. You know, what was the the movie series back in the day when I was a kid in the 1970s, the Jesus of Nazareth one. And the guy who played Jesus always, I'll be honest, the guy who played Jesus in that movie series, he looked like he was stoned. I don't know who they got for that, or, but he was always like this, stoic and unfeeling, and he would say all the words of Christ just like this. Sometimes I don't know what we've been thinking through the years, church, but what's he communicating here? Well, Jesus is about to do something truly good and life-giving. The Pharisees and teachers of the law are using their Sabbath to trap him and ultimately to plot his death. And, and Jesus is not unfeeling. He's not stoic about this. Mark conveys the emotions of Jesus for us very vividly. There's some very strong words that are used here next in, in verse 5. And Jesus looked, he, Jesus, looked around at them with, and the first word is anger. Grieved, at, grieved is the next word, at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, just real quick, let's look at this. Orges is the word that, the Greek word here that's translated in the ESV into the English word anger. It can mean anger. It can mean wrath. It has that feeling to it of wrath. So why is Jesus so angry here? The Pharisees were concerned with following the law. The Pharisees were concerned with going beyond the law. They were building that fence that I've talked about every Sunday around the law to keep people far away from violating it. But they had forgotten the bigger issues of Scripture. They were all about obedience to the most minute details and even going way, way, way beyond what Scripture taught or said. But they had forgotten about compassion the Pharisees had forgotten about mercy and grace. It was the compassion, mercy, and grace of God that had caused him to create the Sabbath for man in the first place. And the Pharisees had forgotten that. 
However, there's something else that Jesus feels other than anger as he looks on these most religious people of the day. And that's how, I'll remind you, we need to understand the Pharisees. These were the super religious of the day. And Jesus doesn't only feel anger, but there's another word that's used. They, these were the men who had immersed themselves in the Scriptures and should know best but he doesn't only feel anger, church. He feels deeply grieved. The Greek word is sulupeo. And it means literally to grieve deeply. It means to feel sympathy. He felt sympathy for them. Please let that sink in. These hypocritical, legalistic, judgmental, condemning religious people who weren't thinking like God the Father thinks at all, but were just using their Sabbath day to try to trap Jesus, the Son of Man, the eternal Son of God, the Messiah. And they were using their Sabbath to try to trap him. Jesus looks on them not just with anger, but with sympathy. He was grieving for them. Why? Because the original language tells us in that verse, because of the parese tes cardias, Jesus grieves over the hardness of their hearts. Jesus grieves for these Pharisees and teachers of law, the law, because he knows that their hearts had become hard. They were stubborn. Remember that in the Bible, the heart is the core of who we are. It's not just the organ that pumps blood to our body, but it's our mind, it's our soul, it's our core, it's our essence. That's what Scripture is talking about when it talks about our heart. Porose tes cardias is actually a Hebrew idiom. It's, it's slang. It's Greek, actually. It's a Greek idiom. It's a Greek slang phrase, and it means spiritual blindness. Hardness of your heart is to be spiritually blind. The hardness of your heart is to have a, an active, in some cases, even active resistance to the will of God. And what we see here in this passage, and this is so important, is that Jesus feels compassion even for the hard-hearted. You know what this reminds me of? It does. It reminds me of the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal sons and how the father when the younger son returns from living a blatantly sinful life and the father comes out and he wants to throw a party for his younger son because his younger son had finally come home. But the older son comes out, he's like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. This young punk son of yours, dad, takes half of our money, hits the bricks, blows it all, comes back here, and you're going to throw him a party? But yet when I want to have a little get-together with some of my friends, that's not going to happen, but you're going to throw him a party. And what this reminds me of is how the father goes out and reasons with his older son. And he says to him, look, you're always with me. But this brother of yours was lost and now he's found. Of course we have to celebrate. And I see that same 
tenderness here in Christ. He wants these religious people to think differently. Jesus here in this encounter, out of compassion, reasons with the Pharisees. And we're going to see this again. He's going to try to persuade them to think like the Father thinks. He's going to try to persuade them to have a heart that is open and soft and tender towards the lost. Well, what does happen? It's the last verse, and it's not good, sadly. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Dr. William Lane writes about this, and he says, Jesus refused to observe the traditional rules. He moved in grace toward sick individuals and healed them without regard to the day of the week. From the Pharisaic point of view, Jesus' word and action totally undermined their interpretation of the law, their piety and their actions. Jesus was not simply another scribe, another teacher who advocated an independent opinion. He constituted a threat to ancestral tradition. When Jesus failed to submit to the scribal regulation of the Sabbath, he broke the tradition and authority confronted authority. It was inevitable. Dr. Lane writes, that the conflict should ensue and that the Pharisees should seek to destroy Jesus. The tension is starting to build, and it will one day culminate in the cross, but we have much to talk about before then. I do want to point out just one more historical note before we move towards application, and it's just because Mark introduces a new group to us here, and so I want to make sure you know who they are. Who are the Herodians? Well, the Herodians, you see some bullet points about them on the screen. The Herodians were Jews that wanted the Roman Empire to remain in control of Israel. Don't miss that. They wanted Rome to stay in control of Israel. That's who this group is. They supported the Herodian dynasty. Uh, first Herod the Great, and now Herod Antipas, who's the current ruler on the scene. Uh, normally... This is really important. The Herodians and the Pharisees were not allies. They actually hated each other. What did verse 6 say? The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians on how to destroy Jesus. Normally, the Herodians and Pharisees were not allies. The Pharisees were anti-Roman. They wanted a Messiah, a Jewish Messiah from the line of David who would overthrow the Romans and establish the Davidic dynasty once again. But in Jesus, they found a common enemy. And the Pharisees and the Herodians found a reason to join forces and to work together. More on them later. So what should we learn today as we wrap up? What should we learn from this encounter in the life of Christ? Well, I have two thoughts for your consideration. I hope the Holy Spirit's been making things click for you all along the last 25, 30 minutes. But, and so hopefully you're wa already walking out of here with some action steps. But let me just give you a couple of my thoughts as I've meditated on this passage this week. First of all, church, let us certainly, let us certainly guard against porosetes cardias. Let us certainly guard against the hardness of our hearts. Let us certainly guard against spiritual blindness 
in our lives. Let us certainly guard against an active resistance against God. We do not want our hearts to become hardened against God. Well, that begs the question, how do I know the condition of my own heart? This has been my experience, and you may disagree, and that's okay, but my experience has been that there has been no greater struggle in my life than to view myself honestly. Anybody with me today? Okay, good. If, if, if I'm only preaching to six of you, it's worth it. <laughs> there has been no greater struggle in my life than to see my heart in an accurate way. I am really good at making excuses for myself. Anyone else? I might be... I would go so far as to say, I might be very judgmental at times about you, but somehow I get a free pass every time. Let's be careful. That's actually something, you know, the two things I study other than biblical literature and theology and that it would be business literature and psychological literature because in the past I've had contracts with community mental health and Department of Health and Human Services for different reasons. And, and so I've done a lot of study in psychological literature and in business literature. And it's very interesting. This is something, this idea that we're talking about right now is something that you'll find in both of those academic areas. They call it the false attribution error. The false attribution error. It says that if uh, Chris, I'll pick on Chris because I know he's okay with it. If Chris is late for a meeting... It's because Chris is a bad person. He's lazy. You know, he's never on time, which is so not true about Chris. He's always on time, and he's anything but lazy. But if, if that's what happens, right? But if I'm late, oh, well, you, so you got to understand my circumstances. You know, I had something going on at home, and then I hit every single red light, and that stupid train that I had, right? And we do this. It's called the false attribution error. We don't give each other a break, but man, we give ourselves lots of breaks. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Begin to know the condition of your heart. How can we figure this out? Let me just give you some ideas. Like the Pharisees in the story, church, do I view others through the lenses of legalism? Here's how I know if I'm doing that. Am I critical? Am I critical of other people? Because if I'm critical of other people, it probably means that I'm thinking legalistically. Am I always watching for somebody to do something wrong? Is that the way I'm thinking? Waiting for someone to violate my expectations? Or, here's the converse of that, do I see God at work around me? Is my heart tender? and open to God and what he is doing in the lives of people. See, this has to do with how I'm thinking, how I'm thinking about people. What am I looking for? Am I looking for people to mess up, or am I looking for the good in people? Do I rejoice with those who rejoice? Am I happy when good things happen to other people? I think these, the answers to these questions tell us a little bit about our own hearts. 
And, and what about in my own life? Let me really turn this inward. Do I, do I read the Word of God or listen to it being taught with a sincere desire for it to transform me? Let me say it to you this way. I'm not trying to put you asleep on a Sunday morning. That's never my goal when I get up here. I'm not trying to say, how can I be as boring as possible so half the church falls asleep? That's not my goal. But, my, but conversely, my goal is not to entertain you. My goal, here's my goal, is as clearly as possible to get what the Word of God says out this mouth and into your hearts. That is my goal. But here's the thing. You have an expectation. And I get this because I've been on that side of it plenty of times in my life. Being in the pew, listening to my pastor preach, being taught the Word of God. And so I've had to think about this. When I come to hear the Word of God preached, do I come with an open heart ready to receive it? That's our expectation. When I open up this book at home, as I hope you do, when I open it up and I study it on my own, am I approaching the word of the living God, the authoritative, inerrant, perfectly true, perfect in every way, word of God with an expectation for it to transform me? I think answering that question will give us an indication of how we're doing in our hearts, church? Do I listen when I pray? Do I wait for God to speak to me in prayer? Brothers and sisters, may our hearts be open. May we be receptive to the Lord, to what he wants to do in us, and to what he wants to do through us. Amen? May we have open hearts. And then the the second thing I would say to you in closing is this, from an open heart, from a soft heart, let's be quick to do good whenever possible. Let's not think legalistically here at Fellowship. Let's just be quick to do good. Let's not try to catch each other doing wrong. Let's be quick to do good and to encourage each others to do encourage each other to do good. Now I've got to warn you about this. If you really start to implement this and put this in practice, that those who have trusted in religion to save them may despise you. I hope not, but we would be a very odd assembly if everybody sitting in the pews every Sunday morning, truly understood the gospel, has embraced the gospel, and was truly trying to live from a gospel-centered heart. I I hope that's the case. I pray that's the case. And I pray that as new people come in, they hear the gospel, they respond to the gospel, and they're transformed by the gospel. Amen? That's our hope. We want to be that church. We want to be that church that new people are constantly coming in the door, and they're getting changed and transformed by the gospel. But I have to think it's possible that there are people in our assembly who have not been converted to the gospel, but they've been converted to religion. And when that happens, those who live from a gospel-centered place should know 
that those who are religious may despise them, that they may be critical because you are not honoring their extra-biblical beliefs. Because if you really begin to do this and work from a soft heart and to do good from a soft heart, you will do things at times that violate the extra-biblical beliefs of religious people. You haven't joined them in the misery of their legalism, and they don't like that. Committing yourself to follow all the rules that the religious have added to the Scriptures. And because you refuse to do what they do, they criticize you for what you're doing. So I say that to you, brothers and sisters, to say, expect that. Jesus told us it would happen. You know, so often, I'll say this and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. So often, so often, we look at persecution. We talk about persecution as always being something that happens from the world to the church. But if you look at persecution in the Scriptures, often it was from within the church. Let's live from a gospel point of view. Let's trust in the gospel, and let's let it change us. And, and if you're persecuted for that, for having a soft heart, and for doing good, just know that you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You stand with Jesus Christ, and nothing else matters. Amen? That's where I want to be. I want to stand with Jesus Christ, and at that point, nothing else matters. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. As the worship team comes and, and gets ready for us to sing in closing, I just want to end with these words of Jesus because they very clearly speak of doing good from a heart that has been softened by the gospel. This is from Matthew chapter 5. It's the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus here says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Translation, blessed are you when you understand that you're spiritually bankrupt. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Translation, Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you weep before God, knowing that you can't possibly save yourself. Then Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you, friends, when you humble yourself because you know your own sin. And then Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, when you understand your spiritual bankruptcy before God and you're grieving over the sinfulness of your heart and it has driven you to humility, you know that you need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to save you. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, everything up to this point, I believe, is the gospel message. I believe what Jesus is giving here in Matthew chapter 5 is the pure gospel. That you have nothing to barter with before God. You have no righteousness in, in yourself. 
And so that will cause you to grieve. It will humble you, and you will understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And if that's you today, then what I would urge you to do is to turn from your sin, to repent from it, and to put all of your trust in Jesus Christ to save you. But Jesus goes on in the Beatitudes, and he says this, and what I believe he's doing is, is he's turning it now, and he's saying, now from a softened heart, from a heart that's being transformed by the gospel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do good. And so he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. What's he saying? He's saying, you've been shown mercy, now show mercy to other people. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are you when you are pure in heart, when you are solely focused on the mission that I've given to you. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, the creators of shalom, those who put broken things back together, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then he ends with this. And I think it's really important because it's what he experienced throughout his entire earthly ministry. It's like he's saying, when those trusting in religion, when people like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those who are religious but have not responded to the gospel, when they go after you, when they attack you, here's what you need to know. And he wraps up this teaching with this idea. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, here's my challenge to you this morning. With open and receptive hearts, soft hearts, and only you can check your own heart. May we listen for God's voice, and then may we be quick to do all the good that he has created us to do. 